Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We apologize. Talk Recorded live. All right, folks. Uh, if you're still here, then that means that you're a book reader and you don't mind being spoiled. Also, you don't mind being spoiled about the trailer for Season 5 because we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a couple of other things as well, uh, and we're going to talk about the books, and I'll give you the chapters in just a moment. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about my IMAX experience. I had a great time going to the IMAX uh, theater and seeing both of those episodes. I thought they were fantastic. I thought that uh, the, it's the only way to see Game of Thrones now. I'm going to have to build my own IMAX theater. I'm going to have to scratch every penny together and just build my own IMAX theater and figure out you know, what company I can get to, to up, uh, upgrade the, the, the DVD, the Blu-ray episodes, so that I can watch it on IMAX theater. And Bubba is going to tell us, joining us from the Joffrey Podcast, he is going to tell us exactly how he feels about the trailer given that he didn't go to the IMAX theater yet. What's up with that, Bubba, you pooper? I am such a buffoon. I'm hearing you and other people talk about how great and fun it was to watch these episodes on an IMAX. And I feel bad. I feel bad that I didn't go. I hope, you know, hopefully this will be a reoccurring thing. I think it might be fun to, uh, I think it may be fun to go to a premiere. You know, maybe admittedly HBO wants us sitting down in front of HBO when the very first episode of a season starts. But I think that would also be fun. Matt, you've made me very jealous. How was this Season 5 trailer in IMAX? How did it look? Oh, the the, the trailer in IMAX absolutely looked fantastic, um, and there's lots of great shots in it. And I, I don't know how in-depth we want to get in breaking it down, because in the next podcast I'm going to be joined by Heath Snow to, to – I won't say we'll do frame by frame, but we're probably going to do talk about most of the shots. But I do want to uh, bring in, of course, my guest, Mike Hall from the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour and ask him about his IMAX experience real quick. How was, how was your thoughts on that? <laughs> hey, kids. Uh, I, you know, I liked it, but what I liked the best about it, to be honest with you, was the sound. I mean, uh-huh. the picture is awesome, you know, but I just don't have the same speaker setup as the Times Square AMC. Imagine that. <laughs> I just, you know, both with the trailer, because, you know, the trailer was cool, but especially with the episodes, um, just the sound was just blowing my mind and kind of makes me want to watch the show with headphones on. Like, you know, big, fat, proper studio headphone joints. You know, I'm going to have to finally break down and get some Bluetooth beats, I guess. Yeah, man, I, I totally agree. In fact, uh, Bubba and I was talking before we started recording that, um, you know, he was asking about, you know, whether the pixelation was good on the, on the picture and everything. And I was like, it wouldn't have mattered because the sound immersed you into the show so much that, um, it, it just made you feel like you were there. Yeah. And it looked fine. I mean, I didn't have any, I didn't see, I didn't have any visual issues whatsoever. Um, you know, as far as digitizing, I didn't, didn't bother me. Um, nope. 
But, yeah, with the sound, you know, I'm not going to say they could have gone with a VHS transfer, but it was, uh, I was in it, man. I was in it. You guys are making me feel so jealous. Why didn't I go? Well, I suppose I have a few days left. Yeah, uh, I think it runs through this Thursday. It's the last day. So get 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 there if you can, Bubba. But first, you've seen the trailer on uh, online. So I've uh, too many times to mention. Right on. Well, uh, just one or two points about the trailer that you want to bring up. And, folks, again, we're going to be talking about this. Um, it will spoil some aspects of Season 5. So even some book readers, if you're disturbed by that, then you may not want to listen to this part. But, Bubba, go. Well, what I was going to say, and I'll try to keep it to uh, scenes that seem to correlate to stuff we've already read. So one of the first things that you see in the trailer seems to correlate to Tywin's funeral, because we're there in the Sept of Baelor, and we're there. Another thing we see is we see these guys with gold masks running through what we assume is marine. And if we've been paying attention to Danny's poor plight in marine, these could be the sons of the harpy or the brazen beasts. They're trying to get some sort of order there. We have snapshots of what look to be the sand snakes, and we've been reading about them a lot, and uh, shots which you would assume might be Dorn, and it's interesting to finally, finally visualize that. There's scenes of Tommen and Marjorie's wedding, which we've already read about in our rereads. There seems to be a scene of Melisandre burning somebody at the stake, and we remember that there was a uh, scene earlier that we read which turned out to be a fake burning of Mance Raider, where theoretically she burned Rattle's shirt. And sure enough, if you watch this trailer close enough, it looks like there's a shot of Rattle's shirt. We've mm-hmm. read about Arya at the House of Black and White, and we see her there, and we also see Needle. I would also say one of the interesting things about the trailer is who doesn't appear in it. Samwell doesn't appear in it. Brienne and Podrick, if they appear in it, they're fleeting shots of them riding on horses. And uh, Stannis, you know, it was a big thing that Stannis himself had come north to the wall, and yet he seemingly doesn't appear in the trailer at all. And so uh, I think that's all I can really talk about without possibly spoiling something we're going to get to in this coming up. But I just thought it was uh, very interesting. It's giving certainly NBRs a chance to see just if they couldn't believe that this could happen, that the story's getting even wider and more spread out and crazier as we go along. Yeah, absolutely is that. There's one other person we don't see. Oh, who else? Uh, Which is uh, Jorah. And there's, I don't know how much we want to talk about it, but there's somebody who seems to be in his place, which really made me happy. Oh, now, hold on. There is, let me say, if you're talking about Jorah <laughs> Mormont, there is a, a very quick, like, one-second shot of him. So he yeah, does get his due, but uh, it, it seems to be from a part which uh, either doesn't happen in the books or we haven't read yet, so I don't want to go too deep into it. And let me stand up for all the old men who like to get busy with young ladies. Woohoo! <laughs> like my boy Jorah. <laughs> But are we, I'm, is it out of bat? Because we see Tyrion. And, we do see Tyrion. And, and we see Tyrion, and he's got a companion. Um, oh, that's true. He has, which was did, did not was not this way in the books. It seems like our buddy Varys is hanging with him, and Varys hasn't appeared at all in our read so far, has he? Where's he been? 
I have to say, going into my first season as a book reader, that's a switch that I'm fine with. Oh, you like varies hanging around. Yeah, I mean, I've always, especially in the show, I think he's a more interesting character than Jorah. Especially in the show, more so in the show than in the books, even. Well, people have been, uh, and this is just people guessing, this is not, this might be a spoiler, but it's only if people guess correctly. People are wondering if Varys will fill the role that Illyrio feels in mm-hmm. the book. Because we we spend a lot of time with Tyrion and Illyrio at the beginning of these this tandem read. And uh, people are wondering, well, maybe they just wanted to give that to Varys so, so he could have something to do, which might be a real good idea. Yeah. I totally agree. Uh, I, and uh, right now, it, it's feeling to me like uh, Barry's is going to um, kind of fill the role of Illyrio, which also begs a question. Um, because we've read about Illyrio directing Tyrion towards Aegon, uh, and there is a little phrase in here from Barry saying, um, who said anything about a him once Tyrion says, good luck finding a, you know, Good luck finding him as a person who could uh, rule Westeros with a, 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 the right family name and, and be loved by all. He says, "Well, who who is it? Uh, you know, who said anything about a him?" So it would seem to me that they're kind of skipping over the whole Aegon thing right now. Correct? They they might be skipping it. They might just be pushing it back to season six. Another thing that eagle eye viewers have noted is that Varys's outfit is very much what Illyrio was wearing on the show back in Season 1. So we're going to have to find out what they're doing. But yes, certainly the trailer gives no sign of Aegon in any way. Or, to be honest, it has no sign of our buddies the Greyjoys in any way, except for half a second of our buddy Reek. Yep, yep. Not much, not much in there uh, in terms of the Greyjoys or um, looks no like... Boltons, uh, no Boltons in the trailer? Just their exes. Their exes are all over the place. Right, their exes survive. Uh, Whose map is that, do you think? Do you think that's Stannis' map, perchance? You would assume so. Uh, If so, he's got a lot of trouble in the north because it's completely (laughs) Bolton-ruled. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, you got any other thoughts on the trailer, buddy? I was just glad to see it. And uh, there were no shots of Cersei looking happy, so... <laughs> Let's roll on so they're true five. to the book there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is a shot. We have had Cersei's flashback and dream to her visit to Maggie the Frog. And there are scenes that appear that they could be from that flashback scene. Yeah, the cutting of the finger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it looks like that. Um, also, there was one shot in there, and, and I have no idea how to speculate about this, uh, to be perfectly honest, but that shot of Cersei with a, it looked like a gift box or something. All of a sudden it opens up and there's a, 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 a big snake holding some kind of necklace in its mouth. That freaked me out. It, I, I don't recall that from my first read. Is that, that something that's in the read? That's not, that's not something that we've read about in the book, so I don't want to go any further except to say I've read the spoiler about this. And uh, I could tell you, it's a show spoiler, it's not a book spoiler. I could tell you, but uh, if you want to stay surprised for that thing, I'll, I'll stay quiet. All right, I'll stay surprised, but I am intrigued by it uh, because we know how much the Sand Snakes love the Lannisters. So, uh, <laughs> and that, that's what that was saying to me all over the place. That seemed like a, oh, a pretty yes, rash please. message. Yeah. Very Any good other point. 
Any other thoughts about the trailer, guys? Nothing. It just it's whetting our appetite for something that's still technically what three months away, two months away. How far away from, are we from season five? Yeah, we're a little we're a little over two months away. Uh, April twelfth, I believe, is the start date for Game of Thrones season five. So we've we've got uh, a couple of months yet to go. Wow. Still, it, it it seems so much closer, but yet maybe now even further away now that we've gotten our appetites wetted a little bit. Any last thoughts on it, Mike? Uh, no, go see it in the theater if you possibly can. Yeah, please do. Uh, because it's great online, but it's much better in your face in IMAX. It really is. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about these chapters this week. What do we have? We've got uh, five chapters once again. All of these from A Dance with Dragons. The Watcher, John 8, Tyrion 9, The Turncloak, and The King's Prize. So, any uh, initial thoughts about these chapters before we dive in? Well, okay, I'm going to be my usual self. I feel like I'm a bit of a broken record here. And let me say that I hope none of our listeners feel this way. But just because we want to give our honest opinion, if you're me and if you fell in love with these books because of their propulsive plots and how the narrative just goes and goes and goes. So far, at the beginning of this week, we've read 1,105 pages in the tandem read. And yet it feels, still feels like stuff is just beginning to ramp up or not ramping up at all. And it's like, George, I love you, but I've got to give you two words that I've said an awful lot on this book. The skip ahead. Oh, wow, the skip ahead. And uh, Mike, uh, skip ahead or stay right here? How are you feeling about it? Uh, I mean, they didn't bother me, but your internet was going to be out for one week out of the tandem read. <laughs> Might not have been the worst week. <laughs> I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're here. I'm not, you know, I'm happy we're covering this. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all right. But, you know, I feel like there's I'm, there's a lot to read into. So, you know, I'm excited to hear kind of Bubba's thoughts on it. But after right. missing the brand chapter last week, um, you know, it definitely oh, yeah. feels like, a, uh, like we're backing off again. So. And let me say, uh, well, I, kn- I know there's some listeners who love these chapters. We want you to write in and tell us we're wrong. We need that We need that pro-chapter point of view because uh, we don't want to beat up on this story and series we love. It's just uh, some of us want it to just move a bit quicker. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I was going to say that um, I think that on a first read, any of these chapters can be very compelling because you get into the world building and everything. But after you've read them and I, I don't know, I can't speak for you, Mike, uh, because obviously you're on your first read of these chapters, but uh, I'm finding some of these chapters harder to read the second time around um, because some of them don't even have a whole lot of, of, of small little fun little puzzles to work out the way it seemed like almost every chapter of a storm of swords had in it. Right, Bubba? That's for sure. And if, if storm of swords didn't have puzzles, it just, uh, you know, those last 300 pages, George has his foot pedal to the metal, and and I call it fireworks happening everywhere. All right. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's check in on The Watcher. And it would seem that The Watcher is Arya Hota in Dorne, and we find him watching as Sir Balan Swan presents the head of the mountain to Prince Doran Martell and his court, which includes the Sand Snakes, 
and Delaria and Ariane. After con- a contested toast to King Tommen, a feast begins where Hota makes note of Sir Balin's reactions and the fact that Marcella and the late Sir Ares aren't present. The conversation turns to a request that Marcella be brought back to King's Landing and filling a vacant council seat. Later, in Doran Solar, a debate about the validity of the head and the cycle of vigilance ensues. After Doran gets an oath from the Sand Snakes to obey him, he reveals what he has learned about Cersei's plan for the return of Marcella and assigns each of the Sand Snakes a task to counteract that plan. Um, here's the question, the big question that I have, uh, Bubba. And, sure. Uh, the thing is, is that, you know, I know Doran, Doran basically says, we still have friends in King's Landing. And I'm trying to put all of these pieces together, and I'm thinking about varies and everything, and I'm thinking about who would be able to, to get information uh, about Cersei's plan to Doran. And Varys is the one that keeps coming to my mind. Is there some, somebody else I should be looking at? Well, no, I think Varys is the very smart one to come to mind. But to be honest, on this read, I came up with one that might be completely out of the box for who their person in King's Landing could be. So are you ready for a crazy tinfoil hat theory as to who the person reporting to Doran Martell is? Yes, please. All right. Well, just everybody follow me on this, and it may not make any sense. But what do we always think during the Cersei chapters? We think of Tina Merriweather's lover with black hair and a scar. And I suddenly thought to myself, what if that was the Red Viper? The Red Viper's hair was black. I don't really remember him having any scar, but he certainly could have had one. And so is it Tana Merriweather who's reporting back to Doran Martell? Once again, there's, there's certainly not much in the text for it, but I thought she would be a good person to have on the inside reporting back to him. And to me, I was trying to wonder how Doran knew about this plan that when they were bringing, uh, they were bringing Marcella and uh, his son Tristan back to King's Landing, you know, this plan to kill him along the way. I thought, well, who could know that? And one of the few people who came to mind who could know it were, sure enough, Tana Merriweather. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Mike, you got any thought on that? I actually, I mean, I had thought, I had assumed that as well. And part of the reason why is because reading the descriptions again of the Sand Snakes uh, reminded me of her. You know, the way that he talks about them, the way that they carry themselves. Um, it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of started to, to sound like her. And then they go from Hota describing the sand snakes and kind of what they're wearing and their personalities and stuff. And then we go into this conversation about, you know, who we have still in the place. And to me, the center is just that. You know, even Varys couldn't know this plan. You know, this plan that he's talking about now is, you know, I mean, who's been around for that plan other than Meriwether? That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, you know, unless uh, Barry still has some people running around in the walls, then uh, she would seem the most likely <laughs> candidate. Little birds, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, excellent. Bubba, what do you got? All right, well, 
you know, once again, boy, if you love these chapters, please, I hope you love them, and I hope uh, anything I say doesn't offend you. I, I hope you write and tell me how, why you love them. But I'll say that even though I think the chapter is okay, I have a real hard time connecting with Ariel Hota. I don't particularly care about him. I think it's interesting that he's foreshadowing a battle coming with Balin Swan, and I think that'll be fun. But just about him, uh, you know, I, once again, I'm not... I'm not, a, you know, if he gets killed in a battle, I'm not going to, you know, it, it won't affect me like a Ned or maybe another POV character would. I would say there's a question, and maybe it's not presented as such, but there's a question that is this skull that Balin Swan presents, is it the mountain skull, or is it the skull of one of these dwarfs, a.k.a. imps, which Cersei has been presented, which also might be a bigger skull than usual, and that she could present as the mountain skull. I say that... um one of the things that uh, the Sand Snakes are are poor poker players. You know, if you want to fool this guy, you got to drink the, to the toast of King Tommen instead of just acting like you're PO'd. And so uh, one of the things that I think it's setting up, and this is another tinfoil hat of mine, if anybody wants to call me out on this, but it feels like Balin Swan and our boy Ario Hota are going to be on a quest with, <coughs> excuse me, Obara, uh, sand, the sand snake, to on a quest for Dark Star. And I think to myself, well, you know, High Hermitage is not that far from Starfall, which is the house of, uh, which is the home of House Dor- Dane, excuse me, House Dane. And sure enough, Dark Star himself is a, is a cousin of the Dane. And I'm thinking, well, why does George even want to bring us there? And one of the things I've always thought for a long time, and even though there isn't much for this in the text, is that for there to be a the Dane's sword to be called Dawn, Sword of the Morning. And I always think of the Long Night. Well, what what would you want to defeat the Long Night? You'd want the Sword of the Morning, Dawn. And so I wonder if, uh, you know, we always wonder about Stannis' uh, flaming sword. And I always wonder if this Dawn, Sword of the Morning from House Dane, is going to be Azorah's High's famous sword lightbringer. So I've brought up a lot of stuff. Sorry. Jump in on anything. Wow, I like the Lightbringer thing, uh, uh, Sword of the Morning being Lightbringer. I think I think that makes great literary and and uh, all, as as logical as Westeros can be. Since. Uh, how about you, Mike? What, what, any thoughts on any of Bubba's points here? Uh, I actually enjoy uh, Ariel Hota's perspective, not because I really care about him as a character, but just because it's so uh, regimented. You know, like he allows himself to glance at the skull. You know, there's this kind of um, <clears throat> very martial uh, way about it. You know, and, and I actually enjoy the chapter, enjoyed the chapter from his POV kind of for that reason. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the way that he, I think that where he's putting everybody is good. But the thing that I like the best is the idea that he's got a sand snake going to the high septum's place. That I find really exciting. Yeah, that is um, pretty smart. Tyene, whose mother we hear was a Septa, to infiltrate the Sept and get close to the High Sparrow. You are right. That is a smart plan. Well, and, you know, I feel like there's there's some really interesting story possibilities there because you're sending one of them to basically replace Oberyn. So she's going to be, as she is referred to in the chapter, you know, Oberyn with Teats, right? Um, that storyline is basically going to play out, I would imagine, similar to the way the Red Viper storyline played out. But when you've got the kind of 
you know, she's continually described as being very innocent in appearance, you know, and she speaks softly and soft hands and all these kinds of things. But, you know, Ariel Hota doesn't trust her for a second. Uh, so I'm really excited for that, to see how that develops. And I will just say that, I, you know, it's been way too long since we've seen or heard from the Sands. Uh, I, that's one thing about this chapter, regardless of whose POV it is, the way, the way that the Sand Snakes are drawn, I, I just, I adore these girls. They're strong, they're stubborn, they're smart, they're, they're everything that, uh, you know, that I admire in women. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and not on top of that, they can fight too, which, you know, for, for a fantasy fanboy, uh, that's just an extra bonus, right? Uh, so... I I I just love I I love these characters. I can't now that we've seen Doran's plan, which I agree with both of you is is very smart in its approach. Uh, of course, things can always go wrong in Westeros in George's world. It always it always does seem to go wrong, but uh, it's a well laid plan, and I can't wait to see. Hopefully, at some point in the future of our story, some of it be put into action. Um, and I I just adore these hands. I can't wait to see them on screen. Uh, on the television show in season five, and and it looks like that they're being very well portrayed as far as what we've seen in the trailer, um, the way that I picture them when I read the book. So that that's something that's really exciting for me. And uh, I I'm not going to be so down on this chapter as I thought I might be. I don't think that there's a lot to talk about in terms of the chapter, but um, it is it brings good feelings to me to have these characters uh, <laughs> back in the story. You know what I'm saying? Well, can I say, Matt, you're talking about, and we're all talking about how Doran's plan sounds really good, and you're like, well, things you know, can't go wrong. Speaking of things going wrong, Doran thinks these ships in lease could be bringing Danny over, and it's like, eh, no, buddy. They are bringing over Aegon and the Golden Company, not bringing over Danny. So uh, even, even Doran, who does seem, you know, after being presented as this weak-willed guy for the longest time, uh, even Doran can be on the complete wrong page. Huh? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, that's a great point. And, um, you know, I, I, the the one person and, and the person that we've kind of also really liked in terms of the Martells, Ariane, or at least I have, you know, um, she's kind of in that linger and wait thing, right? Because Doran's basically saying it depends on, on uh, who's coming and, and, and why, even though he believes it's Daenerys. So uh, we'll have to that, see what, what happens for her, right? That, that's absolutely true, Matt. But I was wondering if you didn't feel a bit upset with Arianne, where it feels like she has one move, and that's flirting. Because it feels like she flirts with Balin Swan a bit. And I'm thinking to myself, do you not remember what happened to Ares Okart? Let's, uh, <laughs> let's cool it with trying to seduce uh, Kingsguard members. She's grown up with the sands. She's embraced her sexuality, just as all people of Dorne do. I got no problem with that at all, Bubba. I, I'm I'm all for it. Let's 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 have another let's have another uh, uh, Ares Oakheart scene, except with Sir Balin Swan. Why not? You you want him to go out like Ares? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> well, I want I want pretty much all of the Kingsguard to go out with Ares, except the one that can protect Tommen and get him away to safety. Oh, okay whoever that might be, which is probably Jamie, who is where's yeah, he at one. now. He's, There's certainly not any of those kettle <laughs> He's in River Run right now, so that's not very good for poor Tommen. Uh, what other thoughts do we have on this chapter, guys? 
my only other thing is just the, I really like the way uh, Doran described himself as the grass. You know, you've got the snake and, and you've got the grass that hides him. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, it was very well written, both in, in the sense of just kind of the way the language is, but also uh, in terms of encapsulating that relationship. Because we never see them together, right? I don't recall a scene with, with Oberyn and Doran together. Am I forgetting anything? No, no, you're right. And, and, and that grass was a lovely metaphor for what theoretically he's been doing. And he's yeah, releasing the snakes. That. He's covering the snakes in what they intend to do. I thought, you know, in, in, the, in the absence of seeing their, their relationship function, um, him and Oberyn, that that was a really effective way to describe it, uh, especially, you know, this much later in the story. So, and I mean, it, it does, it plays because he was covering, you know, the big snake and now he's covering the little ones. So, uh, yeah, that's the only other thing for me. Uh-huh. Anything else, guys? No, but it feels like this story, you know, I, I keep saying it, it's, you know, what they call it Hydra. It just spreads out. It just doesn't stop. You know, we had all these characters together in Dorne and now they're all spreading out and going to different locations. It just won't end. Yeah. Uh, one, my final little thought here is, is uh, Doran's story about a Daenerys of the past and um, liking all of the children together. I think that that was a nice little uh, story about equality. So I uh, thought that was, that was a nice little uh, lesson George threw in for everybody right there. Um, let's move on to John 8. John sends Val on a mission to find Tormund Giantsbane, parley with him, and return with him and they discuss Gilly's child and Melisandre before she leaves. He receives, some, he receives some of his officers to discuss further concerns of theirs, all of which John answers. They talk about Mother Mole and Hardhome and the prospects of what that means before John dismisses them. Mike, what you got, brother? Uh, I, you know, I like this chapter um, as far as, a non-action John chapter, <laughs> especially, you know, the end and the way that he really lays it out uh, for the guys. You know, these are the thousand dead people that are going to come back and, and you know, they're going to be harder to fight when they're gone. Um, so I thought it was a pretty powerful ending. It takes a little while to work up to. For some reason, I do think that Val is going to come back, but I have no idea why. I have no evidence whatsoever for the possibility that she's going to come back. But for some reason, I do believe it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but mostly, you know, so it was a, it was a good chapter. I like the little shout out to, uh, to, um, oh, uh, the guy who was, who was the head of the wall when he got there. I can't remember his name. You mean Commander um, Mormont? Yes, thank you. And I said that earlier. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> he does say, you know, like, Commander Mormont had something to say about those guys, you know, those men, you know. So I like mm-hmm. to kind of shout out um, back to him. and and But mostly, you know, I just really liked how he just made his intentions very clear and, and he said it eloquently, you know. Yeah. Bubba, uh, all of this talk about Hardhome at, at the end of the chapter um, makes me think back to the Melisandre chapter. Did it make you think back to the Melisandre chapter as well? A bit, but why don't you explain to everybody why it makes you think back to the Melisandre chapter? 
Well, the description of this hard home place seems to be a lot of caves, and we're talking about a lot of wildlings being there. And wasn't there something in one of Melisandre's visions about uh, bodies wriggling and wriggling or whatever? I don't know. Doing the the nasty in a bunch of caves. Right, and then the cold entering the caves and all these fires going out. Yeah, she could be describing hard home for sure, this place. Uh, that theoretically, let's get it out here, a wood witch called Mother Mole had a vision of ships arriving arriving to carry the free folk to safety across the water. And so thousands of wildlings have gone to Hardhome, which is on the east coast of uh, this big continent of Westeros, and they're uh, hanging out there. And I will say something that this is just... Uh, my own prediction, I think there may be some shots of hard home in the new trailer, season five trailer. Not going to say anything else. I have no knowledge, but parts me wonders. But let me say our boy, Uthel Yarwick, if I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he claims that hard home itself is cursed, and that makes us all think of Hall and how Hall was cursed. And so maybe this isn't a good, maybe this isn't a good idea. Yeah, perhaps it is not. Um, but again, as Mike brought up, what's the alternative? It doesn't seem like it's a win-win situation either way, right? No, no, that is a great point. When the dead are coming after you, or worse, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. Mike, I'm going to go to you now. And, um, man, Mormont's Raven, now John's Raven, I guess, saying an awful lot of peculiar things. And you heard you heard me see a uh, seeing Bran everywhere on, on the last podcast or, or the, during the <laughs> Bran chapter. Uh, there's some weird words here. Pete, free corn king. I mean, king? Come on. Corn, kill, snow, dead, 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 thief, free. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, I took some of these words that are seemed out of context and I put them together and it's like, king, kill, snow, dead. This is what I came up with. But I'm just wondering what you think. First of all, what do you think about me seeing Bran everywhere? Am I just being uh, Bran paranoid? And second of all, uh, do you think that uh, this could be Blood Raven or Bran or or sometimes interjecting into this Raven? Uh, No, I mean, I think that you're, you know, you may be a little bit Bran obsessed, but I think that (laughs) that was one of the great things about that chapter is there it it opens up so many things that could be reinterpreted you know and it gives you a couple very directly with Ned you know and and going back and seeing the woman cut the throat you know and it's very clear that it's blood that's within the trees and you know so there's things in there that are very clear like you have to rethink some stuff you know based on this and this and that but when you're going that far back in you know, not just the book series with Ned, but in the history of this world with watching the tree get smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, it what isn't up for reinterpretation at that point? You know, anywhere that there's a weirwood tree, I think that you can think, you know, you can kind of reconsider it. So now I know we've seen evidence of the bird being, you know, a little smarter than it should be, in the past, but have we ever seen any kind of evidence of the bird not kind of controlling its own consciousness, I guess? I don't know how else to say that. Yeah, and I don't don't know what kind of sign we would be looking for there either. That's tricky. Yeah, that's true. 
And but uh, you know, we think back to Susan re- remarking about the bones thing about uh, uh, the Lord of Bones uh, alluding to uh, Mance Raider actually being uh, in a glamour. Um, and, and it seems like that the, the, the Raven, and especially with the ties with Brand and everything, that whether this particular Raven is being controlled by anything else or not, it does seem to have a glimpse into things that that we as readers uh, definitely, of course, need to pay attention to, but also just things that um, doesn't seem to be hitting anybody else in the head except us as readers, right? So yeah. I, when you see all of these strange words, I mean, Bubba, what does it make you think of? I mean, uh, can you relate it to what the conversation is, or do you think some of these just kind of jump out really weird? Well, to be honest, I, I there's only so much I can read into the word corn, so I get lost on some of them. Uh, so, uh, to be honest, in this chapter, I tried to, uh, on this read, I should say, I tried to ignore the raven because I just couldn't get some of them. It, it's almost too opaque what it's trying to communicate. Gotcha. Does it All say? Right. Does it say King Kill Snow Dead in order? Like no, that's I'm the just, order. Or no, well, but it does say those words. It. Yeah. Well, uh, I think the odd words are in this order: thief. Free, king, kill, snow, dead. Wow. See, I'm feeling more and more like Stannis isn't going to make it out of this tandem read. And and that that's, I guess, you know, just kind of my own view of it, but that's interesting that that would be there, you know. Yeah. Uh, see, I, I, I almost kind of lump be free king together. And then kill Snow dead together. Oh well, that's think disapp- of, that's depressing. Yeah. Well, thief free king. I don't know what that would mean. Uh, so, so I'm just I'm I'm totally grasping at straws here because everybody loves to hear me just fall on my face on this podcast, and that's why I do it. Uh, but there you go. There, there's there's my thoughts on the matter. I think those are the order that the, the odd words come in. Uh, although we've so heard this, we've heard the raven. Yeah, that's the that's the question. Who would the king be? Is more my question. I can think of a number of thieves. Uh, gosh, there's 700 of them there at the wall, but uh, it's just odd uh, that those words pop. Now, dead. Uh, the raven has said a bunch of times. Let's just qualify. It's it said um, the the raven has said dead almost as much as it said corn, right? Bubba? At this point, yes. Yeah. Um. Off the subject. Let's let's move on. Uh, John and Val. Val shipping them. Mike, you got a you got a sense of their playfulness there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't. I mean, yeah, I feel like she's gonna come back, but I have no evidence for it. I want her to come back too. I, I do too, because she's uh, George describes her as a as a wildling babe. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think it, I mean, you know. She's clearly very useful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of, of Val, sure. uh, Bubba, what, what do you make of this whole thing that she thinks that Melisandre is aware of the baby switch? Uh, it'd make a lot of sense. Melisandre, well, by that chapter from her POV, we really got an idea of what Melisandre can and can't do. But I think she would, you know, I, I would imagine myself that she'd be hip to this, you know, kind of baby swap. 
I think. And so I kind of thought the same thing. All right. Very good. Well, because it just makes me wonder, you know, there's been such an importance placed on quote unquote King's blood. I mean, is, is, does this mean that this particular thing doesn't really matter to Melisandre at all? Mm, that is a great question. I, what I always think is that, you know, the Starks of old were kings before they knelt to the dragon 300 years before the story begins. And so why in the world, why in the world aren't the, why doesn't she want John's blood? Because theoretically it, it's very watered down, but if he's a Stark, he's got some Stark King's blood in him. Mm-hmm. And if, of course, according to our R plus L equals J, uh, he's got a lot more King's blood in him than, than, than even she might suspect at this point. That's true. I want to say that the one thing about our wonderful Val is I think the show has made this a bit cleaner, where the idea is she's going out to get Tormund, but on the show, Tormund's already there at the wall. So, you know, I have a feeling they don't have to include this part of the chapter in the, uh, in the show's versions of things. I'll also yeah. say I, I really love this line. I think this is a great bit of exchange. My boy Eeyore, excuse me, Ed says, this is going to end badly. <laughs> and John's like, you say that of everything. And then Ed's like, I, my lord, usually I'm right. That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good exchange. You've got to give it up for Martin for that uh, fun, fun little thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. What? Uh, anything else on this chapter, guys? Well, the one thing I'll say is, is that this has been going on for a while. That the men of the Night's Watch they hate all of John's decisions, and in this particular case, I kind of agree. In that, while this guy Leathers might be a noble savage, he's jumped his place in the pecking order. And that you know, theoretically, say you'd been working at one place for twenty years, and you think you're in line for a promotion. And suddenly they give it to this wildling who just got hired, and/or you know, sat getting you know, sat and getting to be Lord Commander Squire, and so everybody's like, wait a minute, I I wanted a chance to move up in the world, and you're going to give it to this whore, this man whore, and so I wonder if John doesn't understand office politics. <laughs> Are you saying that John's not a union guy? Is that basically what you're saying, brother? <laughs> Uh, and that's watch is a damn union, for God's sakes. And so, you know, yes, you want to have the right person there for the job. But John is, is as we've seen in almost every chapter, all he, he's not making the men love him at all. Yeah, the thing that I really feel for John is I feel like that no matter what he does, he's made a bad decision. I mean, it, he can only make he can only make the least worse of of two bad decisions. It's, it's a lesser of two evils for him at all times. And that's not to say that he hasn't chosen the wrong one sometimes. You know, I, I, I will give you that. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I feel, I feel, it makes me feel bad for him and it makes me like him more because he has the courage to at least try. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, what else we got on this chapter? That's it for me. I'm just glad he's indoors because it's about to start snowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's move on to Tyrion 9. A becalmed ship finds Tyrion doing the dwarf jousting routine with Penny to keep the crew entertained and to keep them from turning on him and Penny. He talks with Jorah about Danny, which results in him getting hit and banished from Jorah's quarters. 
He talks with Penny, but then a storm comes. As the storm overtakes the ship, Penny kisses Tyrion out of desperation. He uses Sansa as an excuse to cease that bit of business, and after the storm ravages the stinky steward, Tyrion reflects on the widow's prophecy and Makoro's, and the fact that Makoro has gone missing with Jorah. Uh, well, and the fact that... <laughs> let me try and rephrase that. And the fact that Makoro has gone missing, discussing that with Jorah. After nearly three weeks adrift, due to the damage to the ship, they are approached by a slaver ship with Mormont standing ready to defend himself. Hmm. And uh, I guess really, Benero should be mentioned in there as well, because it was kind of, I guess he was the one who told uh, this uh, widow uh, about the fate of the ship in a way. What do you got, Bubba? Well, I will just say that we talk on this show an awful lot about shipping. And I don't mean the ship to Volantis, or the ship from Volantis. I mean relationships. And so, does Penny like Tyrion? Does Tyrion like Penny? Do you ship them together? Or is this a doomed non-romance? How do you guys feel? Mike, you want to I think it's doomed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, you know... Um, Tyrion is still pondering where whores go. He's not even gotten to where dwarfs go. So uh, I, 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 can't, I can't foresee Tyrion uh, and, and Penny ending up together. I can see him caring about her as a fellow human being, and I, I think to that extent, um, maybe, I mean, who would have thought that a guy who was just, you know, who flat out refused uh, to allow that kind of uh, this kind of jesting to go on at, at uh, Joffrey's wedding, more or less. I mean, after it happened, he he put up a big stink about it, and that's what caused the purple wedding. Uh, well, or, or helped transition the purple wedding. Uh, and now all of a sudden he's doing this, and and maybe some of it is pre- self preservation, uh, but it seems to be more about preservation for Penny because he really seems more worried about her. And I think that maybe this kind of having to, to foster big brother uh, her in a way uh, might be helpful in getting helping Tyrion kind of get his stride back because right now he still has no stride whatsoever. Well, he doesn't know what it's like to not have the powerful Lannister name protecting him. And Benny, Benny is kind of teaching him, hey, in this world, if you're not a rich, you know, a member of the nobility, you got to yuck it up or you're in deep trouble. And, yeah, and see, I, was... I, I was thinking she might be – sorry to interrupt. I was just going to finish my point by saying I think in some ways maybe their relationship isn't good, but I think she's good for him. Her humanity might be helping him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly what I was trying to say, but you said much better. What, did, what was you going to say, Mike? <laughs> well, I just I, – you know, to me it's them, them – the question of whether or not they kind of end up together doesn't rely so much on – uh, where Tyrion's head is at, as far, you know, as far as like where do horse go and stuff. And but I really read it as him looking down on her, even though she is a dwarf, and he is also he still kind of has a bit of an aristocratic attitude about. I mean, everyone, you know, the way he describes the the people on the you know the sailors and that kind of stuff. He still has a very kind of aristocratic attitude that I feel like comes out when he talks about Penny. 
you know, and when he talks about dwarfs in general. Um, and, you know, so that, you know, the idea of what Bubba said about she's, you know, she's kind of teaching him how to live in the world without the Lannister name uh, was the one thing that I thought was really interesting about the chapter, was seeing him, you know, try to learn how to not be such a Lannister. Mm-hmm. And I hope this scene is in the show. Because oh, can you good. imagine Peter Dinklage on a pick? Can you, like, just imagine, can you imagine, like, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. Like, he would never do that in his, you know what I mean? He, he's, he's kind of known for not playing, for playing against type in that way. So I guess that's what you have to do to get him on a pig is put him in Game of Thrones. <laughs> We're good. If, we, if we have to do it, we got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, but just think about that for the actor. Like, how do you, as a person who has gone out of your way to strike a completely different, you know, kind of life and, and career for yourself, how do you, as Peter Dinklage, the actor who's, you know, proclaimed and, and everybody loves you in the show, like, do you say no? How do you say no? Or do you do it? Like, I'll be interested to see him perform the scene in that sense that this, I would imagine that he would have a lot of the same emotions that the character was having. Mm. Yeah, my my thing is, Mike, and, and where I'll disagree with you is, I think that Peter Dinklage carries enough weight that the showrunners would write Penny out of the out of the show completely, simply to appease him. Whoa! Wow! Well, it just uh, depends know, how you feel about Penny as a character. Do you guys like Penny? I have like her in relationship to him and what you were saying, kind of, you know, teaching him how to be a, a regular dwarf in the world. Yeah. At, I, at times I like her. I guess at times I feel her naivete as it drives him crazy. It drives me a bit crazy, too. Yeah, that's where I would agree also, Bubba. It, it, it feels to me... um. You know, and and maybe Tyrion, uh, as a character, needs to go through this growth. Uh, I won't question George's wisdom on that. Uh, but for me, as a reader, it's like to see Tyrion even where he was in Game of Thrones, and to see him be at this point uh, seems like a, a total regression um, from the strength of his character. And and maybe I'm supposed to feel that. I guess I am supposed to feel that, but um, as a person who's always liked Tyrion for for stretching beyond himself uh, or what the world thinks he should be, uh, Penny to me is a representation of everything that he shouldn't be, and and that dis- that disturbs me. Well, as bad a place as Tyrion is, the one uh, I guess kind of my final point on this chapter is that he's still pretty right about a lot of things, in that he keeps telling Jorah, he's like, you know, Jorah, you really haven't thought through this plan, that the idea is you present me to her and she's going to be cool with you. Uh, And Jorah gets angry because I think he's beginning to realize, yeah, I haven't thought this through too well either. Right, right. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I I cheered for Jorah when he slugged Tyrion. All right. (laughs) Uh, Simply for the fact that, you know, I'm now a Jorah lover. I've, I've yeah. switched over, so I have to, I have to, I have to cheer for that. And because Tyrion is, um, I don't know, that came across to me. I mean, yeah, Tyrion's being smart, but he's also 
kind of sticking it to the man. And I, you know, the man's suffered enough. He doesn't need to be. He doesn't need to be reminded of how dumb and how wrong he is all the time. Jorah Mormont, <laughs> wrong all the time. So Matt, uh, do you not? Even though you've now come around to Jorah, do you not ship him and Danny? I, I, well, I think that Tyrion's got the right of it in the fact that, um, you know, what Jorah perceives is going to happen is totally wrong, and I think Jorah perceives it as him shipping him and Danny. And I, I, I uh, so in that respect, realistically, no, I can't ship Jorah and Danny, uh, given the situation that has been created. But, um, well, how about you know, would you ship Jorah and Penny? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Poor Penny. Penny Penny gets no love from anybody on the boat. Not even Makaro. Speaking what about, of what about Jora and Pretty? I I think that Pretty's got a better shot with Jora oh, than than so than, tough uh, on Jora. than Tyrion does. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, Pretty and, and uh, what's the dog's name? Who curses? What is the dog's name? Now I feel terrible. Here, hold on. I'll figure it out. Hold you guys right. talk about some other point. I'll figure it out. Mike, is Makoro dead? Uh, I, I hope so. Oh, but no, no. Is your dog named not. Crunch? Probably. Yeah, I think it's Crunch pretty. and Pretty Pig. Bacon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> crunch and bacon. Crunchy bacon, crunchy bacon. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, Mike, you said no. He's probably not. No, I don't think he is. I mean, he's when when main characters don't usually go just kind of mysteriously over the side of the boat. You know, I feel like he's going to have to come back somehow. We're going to have to like if he's going, we're going to see it happen. But water puts out flame, dude. What chance does he have? Poor Mazzaro. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, should we pour one out for Macaro yet, or should we wait and see, Bubba? I was no, I was kind of. I, I in my notes I wrote R I P Macaro. All you, right, you, you, your prophecies were right as you lost as you lost your light. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> boy, they're they're out of the frying pan and into the fire, huh? If this is a slaver ship coming at them, yeah. Well, that that would be how they, you know, the the old visions would get true, I guess. Where would a slaver ship go? Uh, Astapor, Yonkai. Um, makes sense that they could get to uh, Slaver's Bay that way, right? Oh, good point. So yeah, I actually, I, I mean, I know it's like presented as something bad, but I actually read it as like, oh yeah, obviously. You know, I mean, I'm not sure how they you know, how they get uh, into the walls, right, from Slaver's Bay, but it definitely seemed to me like the natural way to finish off that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Good description of a storm. Uh, I mean, uh, if you're reading this the first time, that's cool. Uh, Nice little eye of the hurricane there. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, again, and no offense to to you folks, uh, that you know, love all of, of the, all of the scripting, and uh, I will say George is a fabulous writer. And on a first read, I'm all about it. On a second read, I'm just like thinking on, on this chapter, this this is just so weak. Uh, let's move on. 
Ouch. Skip ahead from Matt. Well. Yeah. Any other thoughts? No, I'm ready. Let's let's get it. Let's get off this boat. All right. Well, uh, we've turned turn cloak on George, so let's go to the turn cloak. And as a heavy snow falls on Winterfell, Theon or Reek or whoever the heck he is recalls the time since the wedding, uh, his lowering of status and the torture of Jane Poole. One of the singers, women, approaches him and questions him about the capture of Winterfell. To avoid her, he takes himself on a tour of Winterfell and memories and contemplates the inevitable battle with Stannis. He goes to the godswood and pleads, then returns to his fellow dogs. He is later summoned by Lady Barbary Dustin to take him to the Winterfell's crypt. On their way down to the crypts, Lady Dustin speaks of Jane and the possible fragility of Bolton's alliances. Passing the graves, Theon and Lady Dustin recall some stark history including Lady Dustin's involvement with Brandon Stark, wah, and her hatred for many things involving Eddard Stark or Catelyn Tully, wah. Mike, what you got, brother? Well, this is the second mention now that we've gotten of uh, Ned's dad and his intended machinations, right? Yeah, that's a great point. So that's, I mean, that's an inter. Obviously, that's a very interesting thing. Um, these are the first characters to really cast any kind of, you know, believable shade on on that history, um, and you know, it makes you wonder what kind of plans he had. I mean, was this just a way of kind of moving up within the Targaryen universe, or did he actually have bigger plans even than that? Well, let's get to it, Mike. Lady Dustin calls them Southron ambitions. And let's look at it. Rickard Stark, Ned's dad, everybody's dad, he did pair his oldest son to a southern lord, a southern, you know, meaning the Riverlands, daughter, Cat Telly. He also promised his only daughter to the heir of the Stormlands. And he had his son Eddard ward in the Vale. So this guy, admittedly, the Riverlands aren't one of the Seven Kingdoms, but Rickard was spreading out his family by getting them, once again, with the Stormlands, that's one of the Seven Kingdoms, uh, through his only daughter, getting his son Ned to get him an inn with the Vale and the Eyrie, and then having his oldest son marry, you know, the you know the Lord Paramount of the River, of the Riverlands. So uh, that does sound like ambitions rather than marrying his children off to his own kind of leisure lords and stuff. And with that, I mean, how would that have affected, I guess all of that would kind of become moot with the way the Lannisters ended up taking a lead role in putting down the Targaryens. So that would all just kind of end up more or less being swept under the rug other than the personal feelings left behind with for instance, uh, Lady Barbary. Yeah, good, good, good point. It 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 makes you wonder, or is this just a woman who's upset? Uh, all right, Mike and Matt, this is an easy one. Where did Lady Dustin's husband die, and in what battle? During the rebellion. Yeah, uh, he during died the rebellion. The, but where did he? He died where at the exactly? Tower of Joy. Did he That's not? That's exactly right. He's buried beneath the Red Mountains of Dorne. Well, what was the only time Ned's forces, and there weren't many of them, went to Dorne? 
They went to the Tower of Joy, where Ned's sister was found. And that's the infamous battle where Howland Reed saved Ned from dying by uh, the by saved Ned from dying from uh, Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. I mean, this is uh, her husband died in like one of the most famous battles of of for the readers that is of the of Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, and she's not happy about it apparently. Yeah, and it's a shame that he didn't survive that battle because we'd have one more way to right, talk about it. We'd have one more person, right, else. besides Hallad Reed, who was there and could tell us what went on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's interesting that Lady Dustin, and maybe we can guess about this too, I thought it was interesting that Lady Dustin told Theon not to tell anyone what she said. And so I was really perplexed by that. Because in a lot of ways she's dissing the Starks, and that would you would seem please the Boltons and all. But does maybe she realize which way the wind blows, and realizes that dissing the Starks isn't a smart move here? Uh, the Riswells and the Barrington boys spit at Theon Turncloak, and you would imagine it's because what Theon did to the Starks. And so, yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting. She said, said, "Theon, don't tell anybody what we talked about." Yeah, I don't get a drop of of. I mean, she doesn't seem to be like she's in a happy marriage with a bright future. I mean, I well, no, I her husband's like, dead. Yeah, she she's had nothing. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, like she's she's kind of in a in like a you know a bit of a kind of hunker down mode. It seems like you know, kind of cover your cover your yeah. backside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the thing that gets me about all of her bad mouthing the Starks and all of this is that uh, I'm I'm starting to question whether you know Brandon was any kind of good guy at all because uh, I mean obviously here Lady Dustin's got it for Brandon. She always did have it for Brandon. Yeah, but claiming thing, that Brandon took her virtue. Right, and and not only that, but. It means that Brandon was a total dog because he was either misleading Catelyn or he was misleading Lady Dustin, right? Right. If her story is true, I would personally imagine that this Miss Dustin was the one being misled and he was fooling around with her even though he knew he couldn't marry her. Yeah. Um, But wouldn't his his status with Catelyn be pretty public? Even before yeah. it was actually going down. I mean, that's not the kind of thing that they just told everybody about, you know, a couple months beforehand. People usually knew that even when they were betrothed as children, you know. Yeah. But it it still makes him a dog to even Catelyn because we've had Catelyn POV chapters where, you know, she seems to have really been in love with Brandon and thought that they both were really in love with each other before they got – obviously they didn't get married because Brandon had to go off and, and – find Leanna, but um, that means that, you know, he was a dog to Catelyn because he was messing around with Lady Dustin. You know what? Hey, don't hate the player, hate the game. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just just saying I ship Brandon and being underground. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good, good job, Mad King. Good job. 
Oh my! We've completely gone off the rails here. <laughs> let me let me go back to this about how Lady Dustin's telling Thea not to tell anybody. You know, let's just keep getting to it. Theoretically, Horsebane Umber, she says, is only there because the Great John is still a prisoner at the Twins. The Hornwood men, they remember what Ramsay Snow slash Bolton did to Lady Hornwood. The the Boltons, uh, you know, the people pledging allegiance to Bolton. It's few and far between. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you were talking about the Umbers. What did Jamie just order that the phrase do? Release, Release. all the Yep. Uh-oh. Uh, not good. Yeah, that may, be a, that may be a domino about to fall. Heck oh. yeah. And then you got Manderley, who, who's obvious. Oh, by the way, Mike, how did, how did you like our account about the pipes? Last week. So good, man. So good. And I wanted to talk about this because every time they bring this guy manually up, all I can think about is where's he got these damn phrases. It's been the only thing I've been able to think about whenever he comes around. And I'm sitting there reading that chapter and thinking like, and I did have this fleeting thought where I was like, oh man, I wish he'd put him in those pies. But I didn't, and this is an interesting thing about kind of cultural bias, you know, is he's only described uh, Martin has only described cannibalism as, uh, you know, something that's done by, like, extreme savages, right. you know. And so I I dismissed that thought, both because of my own whatever cultural biases, I guess, and whatever I interpreted Martin's to be. I kind of put it out of my head that somebody, and, like, it was just like a fleeting joke, you know, like, ha-ha, that would be crazy, but that's just because I'm a like screwed up person that I even thought that waka 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 you know and so then I'm listening to you guys talk about it and I was so happy it was so (laughs) great (laughs) to hear you guys talk about it like that was a kind of validation or uh that was uh that was extremely satisfying and then so then of course I had to go back and read the chapter again you know and and uh and just enjoy it from that perspective so it is very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bubba, where Two. are Eddard's bones, guys? Great, great question. You would assume that they couldn't have gotten past the neck because the neck was being held by those ironborn. Maybe there's a chance that it got put on a boat and got out to White Harbor where the Manderleys roam, but... I, I think there's no way we can know right now. And that is something that I think Martin wants every reader thinking about, in, in, in addition to all these million things he wants people thinking about, including the South, South Rana ambitions. Why would he bring this up so late in the game, you would wonder? Mm, yeah, my goodness. Well, it's um, you know, the Starks have been presented as being very, very um, earnest, you know. Right. The good guys. Uh, right, the good guys. Going back as far as they can recall, you know, to making a deal with the children of the forest, you know. And so to have them presented as uh, kind of bumbling Machiavellians is great. You know, I mean, that's a really interesting thing. And it also, I think, gives a little bit of additional um, apologia or something. I don't know, explanation for maybe why Eddard was so um, strict, you know, and, and so earnest is because he kind of was the one who was that, you know, in the in that generation of his family. 
And, you know, it may be that, you know, the way sometimes the children of alcoholics don't drink, you know, he kind of saw his his dad and what he was trying to do, and, and that kind of led him to back away from it, even though he was arguably, as Hand of the King, in a better position to, to make moves like that than his father ever was. Well, yeah, you. one of the things I also wonder, Mike and Matt, is I wonder if... You know, we've always been presented that the Mad King was mad, and he saw conspiracies everywhere. Well, is it possible that some of these things were happening, that his, his you know, lords of the north, his protectors of the north, were trying to, you know, gain more power on his kingdom because they, they didn't like him too much? Hmm. But nah, he was mad, even though Matt loves him for killing Brandon Stark. Terrible Matt. Uh, now, how about this? How about this winter? We should talk about the phrase are not northerners. We know that. But that said, they're from, you know, just south of the neck, which is pretty close to the north. And they are unused to this amount of snow and cold. And as we find out, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, in the next chapter, this isn't the real, the, the real winter hasn't hit yet. This is trouble in River City. Yeah, Absolutely. And there's other little things in this in this uh, in this chapter. Well, there, there's a mention of Blood Raven. Oh yeah, great. Uh, and there is also, uh, and we, if anybody wants to pick up on any of these, feel free. Uh, there's also the bit brought up about the missing store, swords. Mike, is it swords that uh, from from Brand's days in the crypts that are missing, or is it? The fact that uh, we know that thanks to things like the Dornishman's wife being sung again, we know that Mance is running around. Is it possible that uh, the wildlings are arming themselves within the... I hope so. I mean, these swords are, are too... Uh, these ones that are going, that have been coming up missing are too new to have like disintegrated, right? I know they described some oh, yeah. of the swords in the past as having like literally just been there long enough to not exist anymore. Uh, but these are being stolen. Oh, so yeah. the only other possibility I would think is if, you know, one of the Ironborn took them. But, you know, Theon is described as not liking to go down there. So I doubt he was given tours uh, when they were, you know, when they <laughs> took over. And also the way they describe how it took a half an hour to clear everything off of the door made it sound like people haven't been going down there for very long. So that would yeah, but how, how did all that stuff end up on top of the crypt door is what I'm wondering, because Bran and them, they came out the crypt door. Would they have covered it back up before they left? I don't remember them taking swords with them. So, yeah, what is going on? So that would suggest... Oh, okay, then. So that would suggest it was uh, obfuscated. Yeah, that sounds like a Mantraider thing to do. Mm, possibly so. Possibly the, so. The Abel's washerwomen want to know how Theon got into Winterfell, and I wonder if that's because they want to know how to get out of Winterfell. Dun dun dun. Mm. You know, somebody oh. we haven't talked about much in this chapter is good old the Turncloak himself. And one of the things that I noticed is on the first page or so. He's referring to himself as Theon, or at least the chapter is referring to him as Theon, not Reek. And I thought maybe he's making progress. And it was only after Ramsey came back into the picture and called him Reek that he kind of switched back. And I thought, is Theon trying, you know, somehow deprogramming himself? 
That's a great question. Is he is he fi- is he tr- finding himself again in some way? Obviously, there's still a lot of fear there uh, because Ramsey does kind of snap him back in into certain types of mentality. Right. But um, yeah, I, that's that's why in my description I said Theon or, or Reek or whoever he is because I don't I think there's there is a struggle going on. Bubba, how about you, Mike? Uh, yeah, and I'm glad for it. I'm waiting for him to kill this guy. <laughs> I really hey. hope, I mean, there's some torture involved. He's got to flay at least one of his hands, right? I mean, if he doesn't flay at least one of his hands, then there was a lot of wasted flaying mentions. <laughs> oh, uh, speaking of flaying, I'm going to flay you all with another brand obsession. In the God's Wood. Is that, is that Jane crying or is it Bran? Well, why would it's a great question. Why? How does Bran feel about Theon? Does he pity him? Does he hate him for what he did to his castle and in his his world? So, uh, if it's Bran, I was wondering why he there might have been crying. That's a good question. That's a good question. I think that we have to understand that just because we're going back to this tree and we're following sequential order, I don't necessarily think that we're following Brand's visitations in sequential order. Um, and every time, every time I see a little more emotion coming from somewhere around a tree or from a bird or from a wolf or whatever, I'm thinking that's Brand older. That's Brand suffering because he's underneath that tree. Okay, well, I just was tying the sobbing to Theon, and I thought to myself, it definitely feels like it's Bran sobbing, let's be honest, but I, I had a hard time seeing why he would sob for that, for Theon, considering what Theon has done to him and his family. Well, Theon is pleading there, and if it's a much <laughs> older Bran, if it's a much older Bran, uh, perhaps some sympathy over the years has built up. Yes, you know how I feel about Theon. <laughs> Crackpot. All right. Um, yeah. So, what else we got? Uh, my little writing note for this one is the uh, the sentence. Uh, he says, "You know, the woods, the fields, the king's road, the snows were covering all of them, believe beneath a soft pale mantle." You know, and he says, "The wounds snow made, snow conceals." You know, uh, one of the snows being capitalized. And the other one not. Uh, I just thought that was a particularly tight little turn of phrase. Um, and you know, there's that's I think one of the things I like about the Reek chapters actually is we spend a lot of time in his head. Uh, you know, and I I enjoy that kind of aspect of those chapters. And and this one definitely lived up to it. You know, he goes for a little nighttime walk. Yeah, memories. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anything else? On but is chapter? there is there any reason why we wouldn't be able to hear Jane crying? Because I had no trouble believing Jane was crying every oh, yeah. moment no. that she what had. What she's been through already. Oh, she should be crying. <laughs> is there any reason that we wouldn't be able to hear her? Because I had, I had not thought that it was Bran. I had thought that it was. I had just kind of like read it literally as it was Jane. Well, and even uh, I think Lady Dustin says something similar too that she's aware of of Jane's crying, right? Um, so it could very well not be Bran. 
But I just kept thinking, well, if Ramsey is staying anywhere in that castle, it's somewhere where the where the walls are are pretty sound, and all of that, and then it, it seems less likely that you would hear her all the way out at the Godswood. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just my train of thought on that. Seems reasonable. Anything else? No, I, I just always say that these are the chapters. This is the location across all the locations this is spread out. This is my favorite. And I love the north, and we're going to stay in the north in the next chapter. I love it. We are. We're going to move on to the King's Prize. And the King's Prize is Asha Greyjoy, of course, who is alive, of course, as Stannis. Uh, she's a hostage to Stannis, and she is brought along the journey from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell Hearing bits and pieces of strategies discussed along the way. As the army advances, Asha contemplates her jailer, Justin Massey's intentions, and has conversations with the she bear, Alisane Mormont. She meets with Stannis and offers help to him for freedom, but is refused. Snowfall begins to hamper the advance severely, and sacrifices to the Lord of Light are whispered. After nine days of snow, despite increasing losses, Stannis presses on. After 20 days, Asha is made to walk on a broken foot due to lack of horses. By the 32nd day of a 15-day ride, the the army's morale has become broken. The following day, they find an abandoned village to to camp in, but are then snowed in and stranded by the storms. Uh, I love that passage. Uh, the 32nd day of a 15-day ride. That that's a great. That's a, that was a great little writing bit that I liked. Bubba, what you got, brother? Well, I I want to apologize to everybody listening. I'm going to have to bounce out right about now. But I did want to give a couple notes about this chapter because I am uh, I'm on Team Stannis. I like Team Stannis, and as we were just in the Turncloak chapter, we see that the the Bolton hold, as I've been saying, on the north is really kind of weak. But the north and the winter is actually kind of helping them because Stannis just can't get there. And why do I love Stannis? i got to go with some of these great lines because Stannis is just busting Asha slash Yara Greyjoy left and right. He, he, you know, he's like, the gods did not make you a man. How can I? And she's like, you know, you know, I'll be your man. And he's like, the gods did not make you a man. How can I? And I just love it. He's just, you know, he he's uh, here. It's uh, Stannis at the Apollo, and he's kicking butt and taking <laughs> names. Even though it's pretty rough for his southern lords. I mean, they cross a frozen pond, and he loses a wagon into the pond. I mean, he's in he's in deep dew, and we don't even really know how close he is to Winterfell, which it seems he really needs to do, and to save uh, this Faria, fake Arya, or to get truly everybody on his side. And so uh, with that, i got to apologize to you guys. i got to run. Uh, but uh, tell me how right I am about my boy Stannis. How will they tell you that? We're on Twitter. Oh, okay. You're right. You can reach me on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M at Fit and Trim on Twitter. I'll talk to you guys next week. Sorry, guys. Thank Bye. you, Bubba. Have a good one, sir. Uh, all right, Mike, what you got? Uh, I mean, it was, it was okay. I did, I have to say, like, there was a real sense of foreboding at the end. You know, I really thought that the, the way the snow piled up uh, was well done. But yeah, all in all, it wasn't that. I mean, the way that you described it was like, 
And it's awesome. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I kind of felt the same way, you know. Um, it's it's fine. Uh, I, I didn't, I, you know, there was more to it than it needed to be. It wasn't my favorite chapter. But the la- the very end, once again, very ominous. And that seems to be the kind of way a lot of the chapters, I think, really ended well uh, this week, even if they were a bit fat in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and I can definitely see that. You know, Bubba brought up uh, how he likes his boy Stannis, but I found myself a little concerned for him by Asha's description of him with, the, you know, being able to see his skull underneath his skin and all this stuff. Is there something going on with his health, do you think, or is uh, is it just the fact that maybe he's not eating as much as he should, or is this a lingering effect of that smoke monster baby way back in Clash of Kings? What do you think? I mean, I don't, just don't think he deals with stress very well. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I think Stannis needs chamomile tea and meditation, maybe like an Alan Watts tape or something. But they didn't have any of that then, you know. They uh-huh. hadn't even uh-huh. come across to the New World yet. They didn't have any reefer for him. They got nothing. I mean, he's not a drunk, you know. So I don't know. I just kind of took it as as this like you know, an, another kind of description of. Stannis, just how grim he is. Yeah. Maybe maybe that is it. Maybe it's kind of a personification of his description, uh, just as to where he is as, as a person. <laughs> um, but I find myself a little concerned for his health. I, I just I just do. Uh, I, I think that uh, George has demonstrated well that magic comes at a cost, and I, I don't know what cost we've actually seen uh, of that shadow baby other than uh, perhaps this, which scares me quite a bit. Um, Have we seen him spend this much time this far away from Melisandre before? Is it possible that it's just a separation from her that is kind of pushing him to the edge? uh, That could possibly be. You never know. I don't think he spent this much time away from her since she's been with him. I'm trying to, uh, you know, he was away for the Battle of Blackwater, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He obviously she was there for the siege of Storms End because that's where the Shadow Baby, uh, well, one of the Shadow Babies was done. She she was there at Bitterbridge because that's where the other Shadow Baby was done. Um, so I, I guess. Um, maybe that could be a possible explanation. What worries me more is, will Melisandre even care if she figures out that she's got Jon Snow right there? <laughs> that would be a pretty harsh switch. Yeah. I mean, that would be pretty. That'd be pretty deep. That would suggest that she really. I mean, that, I think that would really kind of take a lot of the wind out of the slowly building respectability that she's got at this point. Mm. Doesn't mean it won't happen. I feel like her. I don't think her, her or Stannis are going to make it out of the tandem read. Personally, uh, if they do make it out of the tandem read, I don't. You know, I think they're going to be two of the the first of the main characters to go once uh, once these hedges start getting pruned. Um, wow. And I, you know, and I think that that her death in particular will be. Uh, pretty spectacular, you know. There's this time. I mean, this is part of the brand conversation last week as well. Was 
you were saying, you know, I kind of need to know who's right. You know, I need to know, like, which God, you know, is the right God. Um, and because you were talking about, you know, should I be worried for brand? You know, is this a bad idea? So on and so forth. And, you know, I kind of tend to take it more, you know, the the the, the silent men kind of, you know, it's one God with a hundred faces. I tend to kind of lean more toward that as being the reality of this world. Um, in which mm-hmm. case, you know, I think that, that in some way or another, Melisandre's Lord of Light is going to have to deal with Bran's old gods. And I think given where they are at, at least right now, it's not to suggest that she's going to be there forever, but I think if they stay there, she's going to end up having to be subservient to those old gods in one way or another, and that's going to kill her, uh, both literally and figuratively. Um, wow. So, yeah. you know, so I'm kind of reading her and Stannis from that perspective at this point. Because, of course, I, so like to me, we're just setting up the situation where Bran wards the dragons and kills the others, you know. Um, and so I'm kind of interpret, interpreting everything as a, as a road toward that eventuality. And she's got to go before that happens. Wow. All right. George, are you taking notes? <laughs> well, I think some way in you know, in some way kind of brand dealing with the fire nature of her and the Lord of Light is going to be that like last piece of education that he needs to be able to ward the dragons and, you know, control the fire. So right. 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 Um now I'm cracking uh, pots, Matt. I'm cracking pots. You know, we that's what I that's what we do here on Podcast Winterfell. Uh, we we crack pots. Uh, one thing that I think is pretty interesting to think about, just in terms of like again minutia, um, we found out in the in the, in the Theon chapter, uh, in the Turncloak chapter, that uh, Roose's scouts saw the army approaching, right, and that they 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 said that the hillsmen were doing better than Stannis's men, and I think that that's described here in this Asha chapter on the third day of the snow. Um, so I think that puts in perspective, uh, you know, how these timelines are kind of fitting together. Um, Mm -hmm. does that, so that would mean seemingly to me that, um, Bolton's had a lot of time and Stannis, we don't know how close he is or not, but Bolton's had a lot of time, uh, to fortify Winterfell even more. And to make plans and to get ready. Yeah, so that doesn't go well for Stannis at all. Right, but I went into this chapter really focused a lot on, uh, and maybe it's just because it was the end of of the Turncloak chapter, but, you know, and Bubba mentioned this, just kind of Barbary talking about how, Lady Dustin just talking about how kind of uh, tentative some of those links are. So to me, like I read that and then we go directly into a Stannis chapter and it's like, yeah, things aren't going that well for him right now, but I'm feeling like the floor is going to fall out from underneath his Bolton. Mm. Very interesting. Just so Very... long as Ramsey gets a hand slate, I'll be happy no matter what else happens. <laughs> he doesn't right. even have to cut his junk off, man. He can even leave his business intact. We just need to play a hand. All right. Uh, yeah. I, but how about this? Um, how much 
to what extent is Alisane pulling Asha's chain about all this business of 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 uh, mating with bears and skin changing? Well, where, where's the line at that? Is there any hint of truth in any of that at all? No, I don't. I don't buy any of it because yeah, she, she's got to be related to the rest of the Mormons that we know, right? Right, and who are very sober people. Like to the mm-hmm. point of of you know being of kind of chafing people around them. So I'm reading all of that as total nonsense, but that's based just on family relations. Who knows what she was doing after everybody else went to sleep, right? <laughs> well, I don't think it's to the extent that she described it. Um, but I wonder if there's some allusion in there to some warging and and stuff like that. What do you think? Well, I I think that maybe she might have warged into a bear before and found a a, a male bear and had some fun. Oh, nice. (laughs) Are we going to get that flashback in the show? Because that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I doubt that we will. Um, I thought it was it, weird that Asha didn't engage with her more in the sense of like, you know, she seems like a pretty, you know, uh, she's got a pretty blue mouth herself, you know, so I kind of expected to get a little bit more of their, I don't know if they're trading stories exactly, but um, yeah, but I don't know. I, I thought that kind of passed by faster than I expected it to once it got started. Yeah. Yeah. What's Stannis going to do, man? He's snowed in. Where do they go from here? <laughs> uh, I mean, winter's still coming, right? Like, theoretically, it hasn't even gotten here yet, has it? They keep describing this as autumn. Autumn's kiss is all this is. Although, after 32 days in a 15-day run, I don't know if that's... Uh, it may be that... Uh, that Autumn is already gotten past the kiss and is starting to feel everybody up. Well, you know, I mean, this is one thing is that part of, you know, and this is a conversation that he had with John is the sense that, you know, you are calling yourself the king of the north, but you really just got here, you know, and there's all of these people who make up the north, you know, who are the mountain clans and stuff like that. And so it might be that, you know, what is really happening here is Stannis is kind of solidifying his place amongst the North people. And once they actually get to Winterfell, the only ones who are going to be able to make it through all of this nonsense are the ones who refer to this as Autumn's Kiss. You know, and so it's really kind of just boiling Stannis' forces down to the people that he's been claiming to represent all along. Ah, that's an interesting point. Could very well be. Um, So... I mean, did you expect to see Asha again? Did you think she was dead? I just got to ask. No, I did not think she was dead. I okay. don't. I mean, I, I don't. I didn't miss her either. But uh, right. you know, but I wasn't really surprised to see her pop up here. I don't know what okay. the point is, other than you know, I think that there's going to be some. To me, I think I don't, there's going to be some sort of a scene where her and Theon get together again for some reason. Ah. Um, you know, and it'll be interesting to see the two of them together as broken individuals. 
literally and figuratively. I mean, obviously, he's a lot more psychologically broken than she is, um, you know, but she's got really nothing left. I mean, even if she could get out of there, where is she going to go? You know, which is really a big theme of the Theon chapter. You know, even if I did escape, where am I going to go? You know, they don't want me home. They don't want me here. They don't want me there. So they're both kind of in that position, which I think will make their interactions more interesting. Right. Right. Hey, Mike, can you give me 30 seconds here real quick? Yeah, sure. Okay, hang on. Okay, sorry, man. The cat was meowing like crazy, so I had to—I was muting myself. Um, and I've got her taken care of now. Um, let's, <laughs> no problem, dude. <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else on this chapter, sir? Uh, no. I—I—I I, I, I liked the end. I thought the 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 last part was well done, and the snow was properly described. And I'm ready to see this fight happen. Right on. Well, we'll have to see when when that happens. How about your rating on these uh, chapters this week? What order are you going in? Uh, I think. Let me see. Let me look at my little piece of paper here. I've got my little numbers. Uh, I think that I'm probably like John Best and Turncloak second, uh, Watcher third, King's Prize, and then Tyrion. Um, you know, I really, I like John's kind of taking these guys on, you know, I like him saying to them, well, it may be that you'll have a chance to elect a new Lord Commander soon. The back half unspoken of that sentence is so until then shut your trap. You know, um, I, I, I liked that chapter and just kind of his attitude about it, uh, the best. And I really like the idea that he's trying to like bring in the giants. Um, I think that's great. You know, I think that's a, a cool kind of concept going forward. I want to see some more giants come around. So, and then, uh-huh. you know, we kind of work our way through. And, I mean, Tyrion's just, like, and the closer he gets to Daenerys, the less interesting his chapters get. I don't know if that's <laughs> intentional. Or... <laughs> He's got to water Tyrion down to make to reach Daenerys level. That's what it is. <laughs> I guess so. I almost, I mean, I almost feel like you should have introduced Daenerys in like book three, uh, you know, and I know that it's, I guess that's not, you know, you have, he had an idea for how the series was going to go, but he can't have realized that the Daenerys chapters, you know, were going to go the way they've been going. 
And the fact that the Tyrion chapters are starting to feel like that is just a little worrying. So Right. Right. Well, that's the old Marinese knot that gets referred to often. Uh is the fact that, you know, you got Danny stuck here and, and how is she gonna uh how are they gonna get people to where she's back involved in the story in some way. Um, so that's what George has been wrestling with for a couple of books now. Um, my rating is, I went the Turncloak first because I really like the, the Stark history and, and the, the, the Theon stuff. Um, then I went the Watcher because uh, I think I made it quite clear that I'm, I'm a huge Sand Snake fan. Um, then I went John because, you know, Ravens. And then I went King's Prize uh, because, yeah, Asha's alive, but it, it's okay. Um, <laughs> not, not, uh, a lot of snowfalls. People die. Um, and, and like you said, the ending's pretty good. It's nice and foreboding. Um, and then, of course, uh, Tyrion, because uh, there was the last page was what made that chapter uh, even remotely interesting. So there we go. There we go. I don't know. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. I don't know if you mentioned in the news section because I dialed in a bit late. You'll have to excuse me. But the gentleman who plays Theon Turncloak, uh, Turncloak is in uh, the new uh, Keanu Reeves movie, John Wick, which has been recently uh, released on DVD. I think it comes out like this week or whatever. And I'm pretty sure from the trailer that he gets his ass kicked. Uh, in the show or in the movie, so uh, <laughs> if you like watching the guy who plays Theon get beat up, go check out John Wick. Poor Alfie Allen, that poor dude. <laughs> He's just playing the beat up guy all the time. Uh, how about some feedback? Uh, first, we want to send a, a shout out to Gary who sent in an email saying just hi and and great job to our panelists uh, about the cast. Um, Gary is the guy who used to call into the fan call-in show uh, almost every show last year for season four. Uh, we hope that he does so again this year. Uh, right now he says he's, he's uh, away, but he uh, hopes to return for season five. So we wanted to give a shout-out to him. Uh, and then this email from Gal, uh, who says, The Valonqar, the one thing about the last Cersei chapter that I've never been under- to understand, maybe you could answer me, why Maggie the Frog, an old woman who spent most of her adult life in Westeros, who knew the correct use of the word maidenhood, why the only word not caught in the common tongue that she used in her conversation with the girls was little brother? And uh, my answer is is because that George needed to build some kind of little mini mystery in his book since Feast doesn't have a lot going for it. Oh, whoa. <laughs> That would be my answer. I don't know. Um, but that's a good question. Uh, Valencar uh, does add an air of mystery as to what was going on for you know a few times, especially if you're doing a tandem read, then it stretches the mystery out a little more. So that's all good. Um, Surely they, it's suggestive of who the Valencar is, right? Uh, Surely possibly. then that individual would, be in, would have some relation to Valeria or have passed through there or right. I mean, that was the way I interpreted it was that that's, that is a clue to who that person is. There's just not enough information yet to be able to read to it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's a decent that's a decent answer, Mike. Uh, actually, that's probably a better answer than than my answer. But I still feel like mine's more real. <laughs> um, okay, and Gal goes on to say, "Hard home. Hard home was destroy, destroyed 600 years ago, and it's a good thing. If hard home wasn't destroyed, it would have been a city up to the time of Anchor uh, Aegon's conquering." and Aegon would have to conquer it and a huge chunk of the land beyond the wall and install install a warden beyond the wall. Then, in the time of peace, the wall would have been abandoned and maybe partially destroyed, and then there would be no defense against the others when they came. Wow. Uh, a lot of supposition there, but that's an interesting thing to think of. Um, then uh, a series of tweets from Winterfell Fresh Justin who is at Justification on Twitter. I got to say, Harold's comments have moved me. Being that George R. R. Martin supposedly is a history buff, I did expect more representation. Harold made quite a case. I don't understand how he represents my diaspora. Is that how you say that? Diaspora? Diaspora. Diaspora. Okay. I don't understand how he represents my diaspora. I'm glad you don't divert from such controversy. George R. R. Martin can only write on what he knows, but if he's considered European history, one would think that the dark-skinned would get more representation. To end, I don't think George R. R. Martin is a racist, but us as readers are trained to read uh, between the lines. Okay. Uh, thank you for that thought. Uh, I think we've all expressed uh, opinions on on George R. R. Martin and whether he is an intended racist or not, but clearly there are some there are some things that Harold has pointed out that should set off alarm bells uh, for certain. Um, speaking of Harold, uh, we have an email from him on uh, on this week's chapter. He wanted to smash her, to smash that mocking smile off her face. He wanted to kiss her, to uh, boink her right there on the table and make her cry his name. For those of us that were slow picking up on the fact that Theon underwent male genital mutilation, I think this line is the magical one that trips you up. The big supposed proof is that Reek and his captors repeatedly say that he's not a man, and that Reek hesitates and stammers when Ramsay tells him to get fake Arya ready for the betting, saying, I have no. Sorry, but that would mean but that would not mean anyone's evidentiary standard because they are reasonable alternative explanations. Reek has been through enough enhanced interrogation that he's not even a man could simply be a reference to him being broken from his sense of self-respect. And his stammering and reluctance with fake Arya could simply reflect, have reflected his reluctance to touch a woman that Ramsay was about to bed on fear of more flaying. Even his muttering, I have no, establishes nothing as he could have been simply saying, I have no right to your wife. The line I reference in this chapter is problematic because Theon's reactionary thought is to having been seduced by it and the attractive washerwomen should not be, oh, I can't do her because I'm reek. Rather, it should have been, I can't do her because it was cut off. I know the defenders will claim that this line can be twisted and manipulated to be consistent with reek having his dragon glass Jamie Lannister. <laughs> they, will sp- <laughs> they will sprout some claim that Reek is so broken that he cannot see beyond his infor- inferiority relationship to Ramsay, but I call total and complete BS on this logic. 
Reek is specifically thinking about whether he should have sex with this woman. Why on earth would his mind completely look past the most obvious barrier to the, that in order to do the mental gymnastics about the consequences from Ramsey? Any man, even a broken one, would have quickly concluded that the desire to have sex with this woman, along with any potential consequences for doing so, are totally moot because they cannot physically perform the function in, this first, in the first place. I can hear the counters. But Ramsey was in his head and dominated his thoughts. If Reek's obsession with Ramsey overpowers his thoughts about sex, then even more so, the first thing that Reek would acknowledge, either consciously or subconsciously, is that Ramsey already cut off his strong bellhops. <laughs> you're, you're just not going to sell me on the idea that a man would be so caught up in his social status that he would utterly fail to think about the fact that the primary, primary problem with taking the washerwoman is that he has nothing to take her with. I think this was just a Martin error, one that led readers to, like me to make the wrong conclusions about what actually happened at Theon. So for anyone wondering how any book reader could possibly believe that Theon still had his Valerian steel intact, this is one of the reasons why. Okay. Uh, he makes a fair wow. point. Wow. He makes a fair wow. point. Wow. I am calling it my strong bell loss from this day forward. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> he does. I have to say, though, this is, this, is, this is Harold being a lawyer. All of that is true, but I still don't buy it. Uh, all of the things he I mean, that interpretation is, is well, well put, but he's, I still don't buy it. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. Uh, a well-argued point, but uh, and and the, the truth of the matter is, is that in the books there is a lot less evidence, and I, I don't know if the fact that uh, you know we're colored by the show's interpretation of that uh, makes it seem more obvious to us when we read little lines uh, like the ones he's pointed out. Um, but nonetheless, um, I I I'm of the camp that that Theon's Valerian steel has been stolen. It's gone by the way of Jerrion <laughs> Lannister. Um, well, I I interpreted that line as as you know him fantasizing in a way. The way you know, like if a person who's lost their arm, you know, thinks about going to the batting range and hitting a baseball or going and trying to like drive golf balls or something. It's like a fantasy as opposed to like a really a a, a plan, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, he's got more on the king's prize. Uh, she, was his own, she was only his hostage, a prize to show the North that he could vanquish the Ironborn. What? Are all the Ironborn utterly delusional after taking an undefended castle made of wood and then losing it in resounding defeat to a handful of previously defeated and left-behind fighters? Is Asha really thinking Stannis is pressed about showing the North that he can defeat the Ironborn? Stannis quickly quashes this, expl- this explaining that the Ironborn strongholds aren't worth the mud beneath his heels. The Ironborn were not a forgiving people, and Asha had been defeated twice, more than enough to stamp her as unfit to rule. Asha needs to learn her Ironborn history. Of course they're f- forgiving of twice-defeated losers. They're Ironborn, after all. All they do is lose, even great Balon Greyjoy, who was made king after two major defeats. 
He was defeated at the Battle of the Mander in Robert's Rebellion, where his father, Quellen, was killed, and he was defeated in Greyjoy's Rebellion, where all his sons, except Theon, were killed. Asha smiled back. Mormont's women are fighters, too. The other women's smile faded. What we are is what you made us. On Bear Island, every child learns to fear krakens rising from the sea. For some reason, my version has completed the thought of Alisane Mormont. It reads like this. Asha smiled back. Mormont women are all fighters, too. The other woman's smile faded. What we are is what you made us. On Bear Island, every child learns to fear krakens rising from the sea. And then we learn in first grade that all the tales we had heard are just a big prank played on us by the second graders. <laughs> the Ironborn suck. And this spawns a new crackpot theory. Brienne and Bran are married in a ceremony officiated by Aaron Dampair, and together they are elected to sit the Seastone chair at the next King's Moot. After the Ironborn notice that Mormont's crow craps on Bran's head, which they take as a sign from the drowned god, Watery's hole, from the drowned god's watery hole. Oh man! As soon as Patchface gets through the serenading the wedding guests with the bear and the maiden fair and the reigns of Castamere, the three faces of Azora High swoop in, riding the three dragons. After awkwardly reminding you that the name of the first book in the series is A Game of Thrones, they drop nukes and obliterate the Iron Islands and everyone currently on them. The reader is left with the feeling that of completion and satisfaction that Martin has long promised the reader. <laughs> oh man! And he's got a he's got another Westeros death match for us. You ready? All right. Uh, simply tell me who wins in a fight to the death between the two combatants. Assume that everyone is healthy and alive, and that it is a fair fight with equal weapons and armor, no outside interference, and magic is not a factor. Ario Hota versus Barristan Selmy. Wow. Uh, I'm going with Hota. I mean, yeah. he seems pretty I, badass. Yeah, and I, I'm assuming that honor isn't near as much of a matter of, of concern for Hota as it is for Selmy. Also. Yeah. I'll, I'll go with Hota as well. Yeah. Uh, how about this one? Euron Crozai versus Ramsey Snow. <laughs> uh, uh, you want me to go first? I'll, I'm going go first. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Uh, I'll go Euron Crozai. I think Ramsey's a little bit uh, crazy, but he's not as crazy as Euron. I'm going with Euron just because I think he actually does more of his own fighting. I mean, the whole ship and Victorian, you know, notwithstanding, seems like he's a guy who's actually done a little bit more than just torture little girls. <laughs> oh, Ramsey. Oh, man. Oh, gosh, I'm reading this one. I'm already laughing. Post-op reek versus pre-processed Jojen Reed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, that's tough. That's tough. That's like asking if Doran Martell is going to fight somebody. Uh, uh, I'm going with Jojen. He's got a little more self-confidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least Jojen might have a green dream about it and be able to tell what Reek was going to do. 
So uh, there you go. Yeah, I think I think Jojen's got the edge. Uh, last one, Stranger, which is the Hound's horse versus Nymeria, Arya's direwolf. Wow! Nymeria. I think I think Nymeria's got that one. Uh, Stranger's just a horse. That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, I mean, I know horses can kill a single wolf. Like in the wild, they would have trouble against a pack of them. But I don't know about a dire wolf. I mean, those things are supposed to be like nearly horse-sized, aren't they? You're pretty yeah, big. I'm going with Nymeria. I think you're right. Right on. And thank you, Harold, for the email. We have another email uh, that I don't have access to right now, but we will read it next week. It was a criticism, and I kind of want Bubba to be here for it. It's a criticism of me and Bubba berating the chapters a little bit. So uh, we'll read that <laughs> next week, I promise. And uh, uh, that's it for this week. I want to thank, uh, of course, Bubba at Fit and Trim on Twitter from the Jeffrey of Podcast, and Mike from the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. Tell people how they can find you on the interwebs to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. Uh, I am on Twitter at Fifth Column Film, and you can go look at worldofvideodoc.com and see a little movie about the store in Santa Monica called Vidiots that was closed last week and then magically rescued by Megan Ellison, whose father made billions of dollars on Oracle, and now they're spending some of it to support culture. So that's been my exciting uh, thing this week, is talking about videos and seeing the store get saved. So check out worldofvideo.com. It's me and Axel. You're going to hear him coming up if I've ever heard been, if I've ever listened to this show before. <laughs> you will. Uh, right after I tell you that next week we're covering A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys 7, A Feast for Crows. Uh, remember, folks, that we've already read The Princess in the Tower, so we're skipping on to that, and we're going on to Elaine 2. Then we're back to A Dance with Dragons with John 9. Then back to A Feast for Crows with Brienne 8 and Cersei 10. And remember that each week's reading material can be found at the 2014 and Beyond tab at podcastwinterfell.com feedback on these chapters or any of the past chapters or the podcast is always welcome. Here is Axel Foley, as mentioned by Mike. Uh, he's putting a cone of silence around himself once again, so he won't hear any uttering of book stuff, uh, but he's going to tell you how to submit that feedback. See you next time on Podcast Winterfell. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.